Christmas Eve in 1968. Some of you are like, I wasn't yet. <laughs> I remember where I was. Christmas Eve 1968, it was historic because it was uh, Apollo 8. Apollo 8 went out of the Earth's atmosphere, and for the first time, we circled the moon. And the astronauts on Apollo 8 did something really unusual on Christmas Eve. You know what they did? They read from the Bible. The astronauts on Apollo 8 took turns reading from the Bible while they were circling the moon on Christmas Eve, and they sent this message back to Earth. The Apollo 8 astronauts were the first ones who took a picture of what's called the Earth Rise. No human being had ever seen this before. No human being had ever gotten a picture of the Earth Rise before. The Apollo 8 astronauts were so thrilled with the Earth Rise, they read the creation story from Genesis chapter 1 on Christmas Eve, and then they said, Merry Christmas to everybody back on Earth, on this good Earth, I think they said. On the whole good earth. So question, was it appropriate to put creation and Christmas together? Well, it was. We're going to talk this month about uh, Christmas in Genesis. And we're going to take four different messianic prophecies out of Genesis. And we're going to take simple ideas, simple truths that will encourage your soul out of these messianic promises that we find in Genesis. Where is Jesus first mentioned in Genesis? Well, the answer to that question, if you haven't thought about it already, is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first mention of Jesus in Genesis. How do we know that? We wouldn't necessarily know that just reading Genesis, would we? But if you have your Bible, and if you turn, and don't do this right now, but we turn to John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on and talks about His creation. And in Colossians chapter 1, it talks about Jesus creating the world. We know that Jesus is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And other places in Genesis, so creation is mentioned there. But the Christmas story is also, elements of the Christmas story are also mentioned in Genesis. And when we mine those truths out of Genesis... They're just enriching. I think you're going to be really encouraged. I feel like praying right now, and I'd like to have you join with me in prayer that this message would be a helpful encouragement to all of you who are here. Would you join me right now as we uh, talk to the Lord? Lord, I want to ask for your help right now. I love you. Grateful to you. Grateful for your word. Grateful for your people. Grateful for your church. I feel a sense of need today for, that you would uh, take what we have to say and that you would use it to be an encouragement to people who feel defeated. An encouragement to people who, are, who feel like they're in a struggle. An encouragement to people who feel like things are against them. An encouragement to people who feel, well, kind of beat up, kind of bruised. Help us in this, I pray today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you saw this movie, maybe you didn't. It's not the kind of movie I would normally watch. The first time I saw it, as a matter of fact, I didn't finish watching it. Which was bad because you've got to watch this movie clear to the end to figure it out. The movie was called The Sixth Sense. At the end of the movie, it's kind of a scary movie. At the end of the movie, they revealed something that made the whole rest of the movie make sense. And if you watched that movie, then you probably at that point wanted to rewind the movie to the very beginning and go, 
oh, now this makes sense. That's why this person did that. That's why this person did that. That's why this person did that. The Bible is exactly like that. In the Old Testament are many passages that actually talk about Jesus. As a matter of fact, I put here on this screen, let's go to the first one here. I put on the screen a number of passages. Let's go through a few of them right now. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you guys are spiritually deaf, you are spiritually blind, you are spiritually dead. You are experts in the Old Testament and the Old Testament talks about me, Moses, and Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books including Genesis, right? And look what he says. You search the back, yeah, you search the scriptures, Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the Old Testament, the scriptures, that's your Bible to the Pharisees, they're talking about who? Me, Jesus. Let's go to the next one. This is also in John in chapter 5 and in verse 46. He says, If you believe Moses, and again, that's the Pentateuch, right? If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. This is just really interesting when you think about it. The secret key that unlocks the Old Testament is that the, Old, that the New Testament clearly reveals that Jesus is standing in the shadows throughout the whole entire Old Testament. And over go. And the thing that makes the Bible come alive is to see Jesus in the Bible. Let's go to the next passage here. This is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. And this is uh, Peter in his message on the day of Pentecost. And he's quoting an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 16. And he specifically says that it's referring to the resurrection. David, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. I will not leave my soul in hell. He says that's a prophetic reference to the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? There's another passage that we're, we want to look at in Colossians 2. I think we missed one. Is there one in Luke? Um, Colossians 2.17 says these Jewish ceremonies, we're talking about Sabbaths and new moons and so forth. He's talking, Paul is writing to the Colossian church about their, they're kind of getting tugged back into Jew, Jewish legalism, ceremonialism. And he's saying those ceremonies, they had their place. They were all what? They were pictures of Jesus. They were shadows they were shadows of Jesus. And the substance is, the rest of the passage is, and the substance is Christ. Take your Bibles and, and look in Luke and chapter 24, and you know that this is one of those beautiful uh, post-resurrection appearances, Luke chapter 24. And, and look at that. This is the road to Emmaus. One of our ABFs is called the Emmaus Road. Very appropriate because on the Emmaus Road, Jesus taught the Old Testament. He taught the Old Testament. And what did he teach about the Old Testament? He showed those disciples himself in the Old Testament. That's why it says there on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, beginning with, and there it is again, Moses and all the prophets, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. So Moses wrote about Jesus, and this is all throughout the Scripture. And so when I say that Jesus was standing in the shadows all throughout the Old Testament, that actually is a very accurate thing to say, because in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17, it specifically says, these things are a shadow of that which is to come. The ceremonial laws that are described in the Old Testament were prefiguring, they were foreshadowing Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Because when we go back in the Old Testament, we be, the Old Testament becomes very lively to us, very useful to us. 
very sweet to us when you see the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, you see that he's the creator God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, you see he's an agent in creation, and it says, what does he create? He creates light. And who is he? He's the light of the world. If you were to go through every day of creation, you would see that every day of creation is a picture of Jesus. But what we want to drive toward today is the picture of Jesus that's the Christmas picture of Jesus. And the first Christmas picture of Jesus is in a unique passage of scripture that theologians often call uh, protevangelium. It's the word meaning the first gospel. The first mention of the gospel, the first mention of the good news is not in the gospels. The first mention of the good news is, in, is immediately after Adam and Eve sin and mankind falls in the garden. The first mention of the gospel is a foreshadowing hint of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And you're sitting there going, so, I mean, uh, why should I care about that? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Genesis chapter 3, 15. Let's look at it. I'm going to show you four really beautiful things about Genesis 3, 15. And let's just go ahead and load that whole slide so that you can see where I'm headed and I just have a couple of minutes to do this. I'm, 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 just gonna, I'm not going to spend a long time, but I think it's a very powerful truth. So I don't think it takes me a long time to do this, but it, be, it introduces our series and gives us a very powerful truth. I'm going to talk about these four things. I see these four things are very clear in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, Genesis 3.15 is jumping into the middle of the passage. Obviously, you know what happened is God created the world and then Adam and, Adam and Eve and so forth. And then he gave them a restriction, and then they violated it, right? And that was called the fall, an understanding of the fall of mankind. The introduction of sin into humanity is a huge and important theological truth. Your life isn't going to make very good sense without understanding that. The Christmas story is really not good news at all unless you really understand that. And then a curse comes on the world, and a curse comes that affects people. And in this passage... God is actually talking to the devil. And here's what he says to him. Among other things, when you get to verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, or like hatred, or tension, or conflict, I will put enmity between you, who's he talking to? The devil, right? Satan, and the woman. That's mysterious, isn't it? I will put enmity between Satan and the woman. And we can just stay here on this slide for quite a while here. And and then he says, and between your offspring and her offspring, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and I'm going to put enmity or conflict between your offspring and her offspring. This is kind of mysterious, but it's going to make sense, especially as we go decode it, looking through the Bible. You Actually, this is one of those interesting things that often something that's symbolic is decoded immediately. But sometimes it's decoded in a really poetic way. For instance, in this passage, you have this introduced early in the Bible. And guess where it's decoded specifically? Revelation. In the Revelation and chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20, it's specifically decoded. It's, in other words, the the parts of it are identified. Who is this? Who is that? I will put enmity or conflict between Satan and the woman and and between your Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring... And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He says to Satan, he, the offspring of the woman, is going to actually crush your head. And you, and, and, and you Satan, are going to injure him a little bit. 
you are going to bruise his heel. Okay, this is the prophecy, and I'm gonna, I want you to notice these four things from it. It's a sobering warning of conflict. It's a staggering prophecy of Christmas. It's a strong declaration of victory, and it's a sweet promise to each of us. Let's go through these, okay? First of all, this is a sobering warning of conflict. We need to understand, we don't understand our world well unless we understand that we are in the middle of a very real spiritual warfare. Don't be surprised about that. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be disappointed by that. This is Genesis 3.15, and it's actually, this is the sobering warning that we get from the very beginning. We're not going to do very well in our life unless we understand the theology of the fall. We're not going to understand our world unless we understand that we live in a world that was beautifully designed by God, but terribly broken by sin. When we understand that we live in a world beautifully designed by God, but terribly broken by sin, it really can help us a great deal. For instance, think about this. Have you ever wondered at Christmas time why it is that so many people have this like sense of goodwill or love or why they forgive at Christmas time or they give at Christmas time or they talk about world peace? Or maybe this just expanded out from Christmas, and let's just talk about all the times in the world. Why is it that so many human beings do so many wonderful things in the world? Well, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of the fact that all around the world, people, not even Christians, do wonderful things and invent wonderful things and develop wonderful things? Why is that? If you go back to Genesis, you really have the answer for that because they were created by God in the image of God. They have majesty and dominion stamped on their very being. Now that starts to make sense. You would expect people that are made in the image of God, in the very image of God, to be able to be capable of some really remarkable things. And the Bible teaches that in, in, in Psalm 8. You know, what is man? Who is man that you're mindful of him? Well, you've made him a little lower than Elohim, crowned him with glory and honor. The dignity, the majesty, the amazing ability that God gave to humankind is because he's created in the image of God. And the New Testament, or the Old Testament, the, the early passage of Scripture that explain where we came from, they tell us that. It makes sense of our world. And then along comes sin, and mankind, humankind, is broken and twisted. And th- now, so the question is, why do people do so many good things? Because they're made in the image of God. And the question is, why do people do so many vile and evil things? Why is there such vile evil, such perversion, such twisted stuff in the world? Why do people do such unspeakable, inhumane kinds of things? If you read Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, you will see why. Because there's a demonic conflict going on, wrestling for the allegiance of the souls of everyone who was born in this world. Okay, so understanding a theology of the fall is really kind of helpful. That's, by the way, what makes Christmas such a happy thing because we recognize that Christmas happens in a broken world. Christmas happens in a sinful world. The light of Christmas dawns on a dark world. That's the first thing to understand is that this, this uh, prophecy is a sobering warning of conflict. It's also a staggering prophecy of Christmas. A staggering prophecy of Christmas. You look at the text, the first thing it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So here the woman has sinned, and the man has sinned, and he's cursing the ground, and they're going to live on a cursed earth, and they're going to have to make their way in a cursed earth. And, 
And it specifically says that the woman is going to suffer. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring, it shall bring forth for you. You'll eat, uh, you'll eat plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. That's just a depressing passage, isn't it? Hey, ladies, guess what? You get to have babies, but it's going to hurt really bad, and your life is going to be really hard, and your husband is going to go off, and he's going to have to, just to get the bread, it's going to be hard work. I'm not saying that you know, men don't nurture children and women don't work, right? But the Bible is teaching that because we live in a cursed world, things are going to be hard. Okay, it's probably good for us to have a, an honest and accurate assessment of the world that we live in. It's like, that's the way it is. So that's what the first phrase is talking about. But the second phrase says something more. It says, there'll be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I may not know this immediately, but that's the only place in the Bible a woman is said to have offspring. In other words, descendants of a woman. You say, well, physically that's true. Of course it is. But in the Bible, people are always referred to as descendants of men. Descendants of men. This is a unique poetic expression saying this one is going to be a descendant of a woman. Who in the world is going to be a descendant of a woman but not of a man? Is there anybody ever in human history who had a mom but he didn't have a human dad? There was a man in human history, and you kind of hear the chimes ringing. You can hear the Christmas in it, can't you? This is a prophecy of the virgin birth. This is a prophecy of the virgin birth. It's also a shadowy prophecy of the use of Israel, because if you do look in Genesis chapter 12, where this is really decoded, and the very people that are in it are decoded, or they're identified, you see that the woman is identified. We'll see this in later prophecies in Genesis 2, is that God is going to raise up Israel in a special way. And that woman is going to be identified with Israel. And that, and that, and that, that red dragon in Genesis, or Revelation 12 is specifically decoded as the devil. And that child is specifically identified as Jesus Christ, who was born in a manger, was laid in a manger after his birth, and who lived to die and be buried and rise again. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And he is our conquering king. This is a sobering warning, but it's a staggering prophecy of Christmas. A beautiful one. It gives you goosebumps. It ought to. Third thing is, it's a strong declaration of victory. I was looking forward to getting to this all week. It's a strong declaration of victory. Where does this happen where God is talking to Satan? Where does it happen? When does it happen? What has just happened in the world? What is the context of this prophecy? Well, God is speaking to Satan immediately after the fall. That's got to be one of the darkest times in human history, even today. Mankind has chosen sin, and sin and death are going to pass to all men because all have sinned. And now God comes along, and in a very stern curse, and as he's declaring a curse, he's also giving a strong declaration of victory because he says, he identifies, he says, you know, Jesus as identified here, is going to have his heel bruised by Satan. He's going to be wounded by Satan. When did Satan bruise the heel of Jesus? That was on Calvary. It's a picture of Calvary. But then it says, but Jesus is going to crush Satan's head. 
And he starts doing that on Calvary too, but he finishes in, in, in Revelation. He's going to completely destroy the devil, and he's going to destroy the works of the devil. That is a strong declaration of victory. Jesus is a conquering king. Jesus is a mighty warrior. Jesus is stronger than any other. And that's something you want to get embedded in your heart. You want to know that right now because here's the deal. We live in a broken and a fallen world where there's a demonic conflict going on and we cannot avoid it. But there is one who is stronger than the devil. And he is our savior, Jesus Christ, who came, the virgin-born baby, and he was buried and he rose again and in the person of his spirit indwells every believer. And he is a conquering king. And that is a declaration of victory. Now, let's go back to Revelation chapter 12 and let's have a little fun with this. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 12. And, and, and it says this, chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, her head a crown of 12 stars, pregnant, was crying out with birth pains, agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Um, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, who, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Can anybody guess who that child is? That's Jesus, right? You've got the devil, you've got Israel, you've got Jesus. And we're sweeping now to the end, the consummation of human history, and the devil is about to get crushed. And the victory is about to be won, and totally won, and completely won. Whose side are you on? I'm just asking, whose side are you on? Think about that. That's what's going on in the world. That makes sense in my world. The Christmas story makes sense of my world. The story of that virgin-born baby makes my world make sense and puts hope in my soul. And the woman fled in the wilderness, and she was there in a place determined by God. And now war rose in heaven, and Michael and the archangels, verse 7, fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God, authority of Christ has come. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Go ahead, say amen right there. Yeah, could use a little charismatic on that one right there. They burst into applause at that point. They stood to their feet. They cheered. They cried. You will someday. You will someday. You will someday. If you know him, you will someday. Matter of fact, you won't get on your feet. You'll get on your face, won't you? Won't we cheer? Won't we? It's like when our conquering king, when we see this happen, when Satan is finally crushed, you know, if you went to Lake Ann Camp, they have a song they always sing. It's a crack up to watch the kids sing it. You know what I'm talking about? It, what is it? Kids, tell me if you went to Lake Ann, what's it called? Romans 16. 19, you know that, right? What does it say? It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And then, as I was thinking about this week, I thought, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Because that's what's going to happen. I'm going to crush him under his feet, right? But I misquoted the verse. That's not what it says. What it says in Romans 16, 19, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you realize what he's saying? Jesus has a victory. He has a total and complete, absolute victory. And this passage is a strong declaration of victory. 
but he's sweeping us into his victory. He's sweeping you into his victory. Because Jesus is victor, you can be victor. You don't have to live a defeated life. You don't have to live a depressed life. You don't have to be overcome with despair. You have victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus is absolute victor, and he sweeps you into his victory. And when he crushes Satan, it'll be under your feet. It'll be under my feet. How beautiful is that? How wonderful is that? Are you excited about that? How about a little enthusiasm in the house today? That's exciting to me. Okay, so you watched Anne of Green Gables. If you didn't, you should watch. Or you read about it, right? And this is a little adorable redheaded orphan. And she comes out of an orphanage, and she's adopted by uh, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert. Remember how the story goes? And the first night, you know, she's, she's up there, and Marilla is trying to teach her about God and about prayer. And she's just not been taught. She's got a really tender heart about it, but she hasn't been taught. And she is in the depths of despair. Remember that? She's got this flair for the dramatic. She's got this red hair. And she says, look at my hair. I'm in the depths of despair. How could a person ever be happy again with hair this color? I love this part, right? I'm in the depths of despair. And what does Marilla say? Don't ever say you're in the depths of despair. She says, because to say to despair, do you remember this? You guys should be able to quote this business right here, yeah. To despair is to turn your back on God. I'm going to take your Bibles right now, and I want you to see a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just turn to it because you're going to want to mark it. You're going to go back, and you're going to want to read it again. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. And remember, to despair is to turn your back on God. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. You don't understand. My marriage is struggling. You understand, my kids are rebelling. You understand, loved ones have cancer. You understand, I just lost a loved one. You understand, this is a bleak Christmas. You don't understand, I'm unemployed, I'm underemployed. I struggle with depression. You don't understand. Yes, I do. What you're saying is you're bruised. What I'm saying is you're not broken. You're bruised, but you're not crushed. You're cast down, but you're not destroyed. You're in Christ, so you're going to win because he is the ultimate victor. How cool is that? And that's why it says right here, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's just us clay pots. To show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not us. We're afflicted every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And we always carry the body, caring about the body of the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? We are the ones always going around talking about Jesus dying. Why is that? Because that way we can manifest the life of God. Christians are the only ones who really understand that. What is the key to our victory? That Jesus died on the cross. When Satan bruised the heel of Jesus, then Jesus began to win the great victory in our world. And he sweeps us into that victory. And you don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be discouraged. You don't have to give up. Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. My friend, the Christmas story ought to encourage you. The story of the virgin-born baby ought to really encourage you no matter what you're going through. We had a kid in our church who got saved here, and we were up in Algonquin together. Never forget this. We're just we're paddling along. He didn't know the Bible. He didn't know church. He didn't know hardly anything. He's just a brand-new Christian, brand-new Christian. I'll never forget this. And we're in the canoe together, and we're paddling up, up Algonquin together. And I said to him, I don't know how it came up, but I, but I referred to a passage of Scripture in, in Isaiah, and, and, and it was a passage that really encouraged me 
And that is when people attack me and when people misunderstand me and when people verbally abuse me, I always go back and I quote this passage from Isaiah 54 and verse 17 that God gave to his prophet Isaiah. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper or no weapon fashioned against you will succeed. You will confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is me from the Lord. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. And this kid, who didn't grow up in a church, and he's raised by a single mom, and he never knew his dad, and he didn't know the gospel until he came to this church. I started to quote that verse, and when I did, he finished it. And I thought, well, where did you learn that verse? And you know what he told me? I'll never forget this. He said, my mom, my mom taught me that verse. My mom taught me to memorize that verse. When I was young, here's a single mom, and she struggled with all the things that single moms must struggle with, poverty and mistakes in her past and other stuff. And she's got this boy that she loves. She's got three of them. And she's getting to put him to bed at night, and she picks a verse out of the air. No weapon formed against me will prosper. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their righteousness from me, I will vindicate them. She taught him that. She wanted him to know that he didn't have to be a loser in life, but that he could be a winner, that he could be victorious because he has a conquering king as his savior. That was an that was a, a enlightening moment for me. There was a funeral here last week. You know, you, you know last Sunday we had a baptism. It was a delightful time. The D'Alessio family, they're going to join the church here. They Mom and dad were baptized last Sunday right here in the baptistry. And then on Monday, Katie's mother suddenly died. And she was obviously broken. Her mom was a believer. Um, and the funeral was on Thursday. Um, Katie, you know, she came here. She's the one I told about. She came here a little bit when she was a little girl coming to Juana. Came here. She's a classmate of some of our people here. And uh, she's... Uh, going to be one of our members, or her, her mom died. She asked me if I would preach the funeral on Thursday night before our deacons meeting. I went over there, and I preached the funeral. Precious family. They loved her so much, you could tell that she was a very precious lady that was very, very loved. Now, when I got done with the funeral, I had one of those moments that you have happen every once in a while that kind of keeps you going. This guy walks up to me. He looked a little rough. He was an older guy, and he looked like he'd been through a lot. But I noticed when he walked up to me after the funeral, there were tears on his face. And he's very open and very, very, very agreeing and very welcoming. I said, how were you related to Bev? And he said, Bev was my sister. He'd come from Arizona to his sister's funeral. And he said to me, thank you so much for what you said. I couldn't agree with it more. He said, you know what, a long, a big, long, his name was Dave. He said, for a long time in my life, I, I lived away from God. Nine years ago, he said, I came to know the Lord, and I've been clean and sober since. I've been clean and sober ever since. I want you to know something. If you are in Christ, you are going to get bruised in this life, but you are not going to be crushed. You are going to get hurt in this life, but you don't have to give up. You don't have to despair. Don't you thank God for that? Now, I'm going to pray, and we're going to distribute the elements of communion. And we're going to receive the elements. Here's the, how that works. Over here is the bread. It represents the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Over here is the cup. It represents his precious blood. He came as a human being 
to sympathize with us, to suffer with us. And he shed his blood to satisfy the demands of God because of our sin. That ought to just thrill you. Uh, that ought to mean a lot to you. That ought to move you, even at Christmas time. Here in our church, this is my, I think, 11th Christmas now. This is the 10th year, 11th Christmas now. And uh, every year we start Christmas season with communion. Every year. That's what we do. And we're doing that right now. And a little Hope and I were driving in the car the other day, and there's a, I put together a little song list of Christmas songs. And I said, hey, Hope, Hope likes to get an early start on Christmas. And so I said, well, let's listen to this, a pretty Christmas song. And we took this new album that we got there and loaded it up on Spotify and plugged it into the car, and we're going. And I plugged in that song I'd never heard before. And I thought, as about halfway through the song, I thought, this is a really touching song. Is it just me? <laughs> and I looked over at Little Hope, and <laughs> she was just weeping. And I thought, you know what? I want everybody to hear this song because it is very much an appropriate song for right now. And while we distribute the bread today, you're going to hear that song. And it's a great way for us to launch Christmas. What a wonderful Savior we have, the virgin-born baby, Jesus Christ, who is the conquering king. We may be bruised, but we are not going to be crushed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful victory that you gave us through Jesus. Amen.